Welcome back to Mox Madness. <laughs> we are doing it again. We're One doing more time. It again. You know, we, we, we took a lot of your time last time. We took about 20 <laughs> minutes of your episode because we want to talk about our yeah. stuff. This time, we're taking 25 seconds on February 11th. Not 8th, because I have long-term memory that I can, you know, space out. On February 11th, another bill to enroll 200,000. That is a lot. Soldiers was introduced, and for a while, it looked as though it would pass. General Lee again wrote, declaring the measure not only expedient, but necessary, and that under proper circumstances, the Negroes would make efficient soldiers. The Richmond Ooh. Whig, that's how you know it's <laughs> going to be a great take, guys. Sure. <laughs> the the party's part. so racist, it went out of existence. Uh, the Richmond Whig of February 20th, 1865, declared that the proposition to put Negroes in the army has gained rapidly of late and promises in some form or another to be adopted. The enemy has taught us a lesson to which we ought not to shut our eyes. He has caused him to fight as well, if not better, than have his white troops of the same length of service. Two-time Daytona 500 champion Jeff Davis discussed the matter with the governor of Virginia and said that he had been in conference with the Secretary of War and the Adjutant General. David, what's an Adjutant General? One more time. It's an assistant general. Thank you. He declared that the aid of the recruiting officers for the purpose of enlisting Negroes would be freely accepted. March 17th, it was said, we shall have a Negro army. Period. Letters Happy are. St. Patty's Day to that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Letters <laughs> are pouring into the departments <laughs> from men of military skill and character asking authority to raise companies, battalions, and regiments of Negro troops. Let's be real. They just want anyone that will fight at this point, dude. Like, is yes, is yes. not. They're desperate. They're desperate. And they're like, please, please fight to stay enslaved. Please, God. I feel like Sherman might be marching towards the sea at this point. And we know that he's a mm-hmm. wild card on this show. But but he, he does have a distinct <laughs> side that he's fighting for. And, uh, and it, it ain't the South. So that's happening. Thus, on recommendation from General Lee and Governor Smith of Virginia, and with the approval of two-time Daytona 500 champion Jeff Davis, an act was passed by the Confederate Congress. March 13th, 1865, enrolling slaves in the Confederate Army. Each state was to furnish a quota of a total of 300,000. The preamble of the act reads as follows. I feel like the only preambles I read are like to like the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, I'm surprised an act had a preamble. This feels like it's going to be super racist and, and I'm not going to enjoy it. An act to increase the military force of the Confederate States. Going great so Racist far. enough there, Going yeah. Going great so far. The Congress of the Confederate States of America so enact that in order to provide additional forces to repel invasion, it's hard to invade. You guys left. It, it, you, you all left. Not War invade. of northern aggression, Nathan. Yeah. War of northern aggression. It's hard to invade. Like, like they're coming in. No, that's not how it works. Um, repel invasion, maintain the rightful position of the Confederate States, rightful position of an establishment that existed for a grand total of less time than I was in college, uh, and is hereby authorized to ask for and accept the owners of the slaves, the services of such able-bodied Negro men as he may deem expedient. Such number of able-bodied Negro men as he may deem expedient for and during the war to perform military service in whatever capacity he may direct. The language used implied that volunteering was to be rewarded with freedom. Kind of seems like a, that's uh, like a, it's a I, trap. I've been voluntold to join the army. Like, well, oh, you yeah, could yeah, be yeah. a slave or you could go fight. I don't know which of those you'd rather do, man. Like one of those has a fifty fifty one of those has a better than zero chance of me being free later, and one of those is I die a slave. I'm gonna I'm gonna take the one. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. General Lee cooperated with the War Department in hastening the recruiting of Negro troops. Recruiting officers were appointed in nearly all southern states. 
Lieutenant John L. Cowardin. Uh, David, just correct me. Uh, it's John no, L. No, Cowardin. Yeah, yeah. It's the uh, coward and then an I-N at the end. Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, very appropriate. I'm, I'm excited for the next word. The Let's fact that there. he is an adjutant. <laughs> he is an assistant coward. and He is the adjutant 19th <laughs> Battalion Virginia Artillery. Was ordered on April 1st, 1865 to recruit Negro troops according to the act on April March 30th, 1865, Captain Edward Bostick was ordered to raise four companies in South Carolina. Other officers were ordered to raise companies in Alabama, Florida, and Virginia. Uh, Three states that have no issues at all, ever, at all times. Uh, It was the opinion of two-time Daytona 500 winning president and also president Jeff Davis that he sh- that on learning of the passage of the act that not so much was accomplished as would have been if the act had been passed earlier so that during the winter the slaves could have been drilled and made ready for the spring campaign of 1865 so what he's saying is it turns out if you just turn to a bunch of slaves all of a sudden and go hey you're soldiers now they don't instantly level up to soldier, and it would be nice if you could have like sent them to spring training or something like that beforehand. Um, David, I'm done talking for a second. Would you yes. like to take over? It was too late now, and on April 9th, 1865, Lee surrendered. Whoops, the noodles! That is how your little uh, slavery country project lasts less than the runtime of news radio. Da, da, um, da. John Cena's music. Let it go, baby. Come on. (laughs) Negroes, well within the Confederate lines, were not insensible of what was going on. A colored newspaper said secret associations were at once organized in Richmond, which rapidly spread throughout Virginia, where the venerable patriarchs of the oppressed people prayerfully assembled together to deliberate upon the proposition of taking up arms in defense of the South. There was but one opinion as to the rebellion and its object, but the question which puzzled them most was how were they to act as part of oh, how do they to act as part oh to, as a part to be assigned to them in this meritable drama in this martial drama after the cordial interchange of opinions it was decided with great unanimous uh, unanimous uh, and finally unanimity yeah that all of them and agreed finally, at the same time. That's what I, yes, I understood the meaning. Um, I hope you did too. And finally ratified by all the auxiliary associations everywhere that the black men should promptly respond to the call of the rebel chiefs whenever it should be made for them to take up arms. Uh, I don't, I don't like the fact that they capitalized rebel chiefs there. Yeah, not so fun. Not so fun. Uh, A question arose as to what position they would likely occupy in an engagement, which occasioned no little solicitude from which all minds were relieved by agreeing that if they were to be placed in front of as soon as the battle began the negroes were to raise a a shout about abraham lincoln and the union and satisfied there would be plenty of support from the federal force they were to turn like uncaged tigers upon the rebel hordes Mm -hmm. they should be placed in the rear it was also understood that as soon as the firing began they were to charge furiously upon the chivalry which would place them between two fires which would disastrously defeat the army of lee if not accomplish the entire annihilation so basically they were joining for sabotage yeah no it's great great. i i like it i like it i love it i love it um, again, you know, give the slaves guns. Nothing. What could go wrong? Nothing. Nothing wrong here. Um, of the effort of Negro soldiers in the Northern Army, there can be no doubt. John C. Underwood, resident of Virginia for twenty years, said before the Committee on Reconstruction. Wait a minute now. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. The only bona fides this man has given is, I was born in Virginia, and I've been here for at least twenty years. I was going to say, you don't even know he was born. I don't know. I don't know how old he is. All I know is my name is John and I've lived here for at least 20 years. I would like to speak. (laughs) I had a conversation with one of the leading men in that city. And he said to me that the enlistment of Negro troops by the United States was the turning point of the rebellion. That man sounds like he's right. That it was the heaviest blow they ever received. 
He remarked that when the Negroes deserted their masters and showed a general disposition to do so and join the forces of the United States, intelligent men everywhere saw that the matter was ended. I have often heard a similar expression of opinion from the others, and I am satisfied that the origin of this bitterness towards the Negro is this belief among leading men that their weight thrown into the scale decided the contest against them. However, the fact may be, I think that such is a pretty well-settled conclusion among leading rebels in Virginia. Again, with a capital so, R. Yeah. Um, a Union general said the American Civil War of 1861-1865 marks an epoch not only in the history of the United States, but in that of democracy and of civilization. Its issue has vitally affected the course of human progress. To the student of history, it ranks along with the conquest of Alexander, the incursions of the barbarians, no, the Crusades, no, the discovery of America, uh-uh. and the American Revolution. It doesn't rank among any of those things. I'm just, just no. going to be real right here, guys. Uh, if you were putting the American Civil War along with the conquests of Alexander and the incursions of the barbarians, so the fall of Rome and the conquests of Alexander, you might be a white supremacist. I'm just saying. I'm just throwing it out there. I'm just – y'all could take it. Y'all could throw it back. I'm saying if you think that a bunch of mm, rural white people and then some – Black people fighting for their own lives is on the same level. Maybe you're wrong. I mean, well, the black people are right. The black people are right. The white people fighting over who gets to enslave who is wrong. Yeah, I was going to say, if you're uplifting the Confederacy for this, yeah. But if you're saying the abolishment of slavery, no, I put it up there. I put it higher and I would make sure you include Haiti. Fuck off. Because here's the problem. We're both putting yeah. our fingers up. You put your finger back up, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the issue with that. That's assuming you ignored the last 45 pages of this book. This wasn't the fight for the abolition of slavery. It wasn't that at all. If it was the fight for abolition of slavery, we could have this conversation. This was a fight over whether the patrician South or the exploiting capitalist North got to exploit black people. That's all it was. No, I- I agree. I agree. The seizing of the moment as a slave rebellion to abolish slavery puts it in those historic epochs. But that's not what these people are arguing. And you okay, know that's it. Fair. That's the fair. white that's people fair. are and arguing that to- some like. Then I'm totally on your side. They're arguing that it was some like historic struggle to keep America united. They weren't yeah, talking about In that case, I'm totally with state. you. Yeah. And even if you were talking about it as that, that wasn't what this was. And we unfortunately. Even though in the moment right now, this feels very emancipatory and very, you know, liberatory, we both fucking know how this book's going to end, and it ain't great. Yeah, that's true. It's that's not. True. It's, it's fucking awful. If you compared Reconstruction to the fall of Rome, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know which one I'd go with at this point. <laughs> Hopefully, this empire falls and we get to all see it. If there's a just and loving God, David, please read. It settled the question of our national unity. Oh yeah, no, okay, you're definitely right. You read this. You read the room much better than me. Uh, settled the unit. <laughs> settled the question of our national unity with all of the consequences attaching thereto. It exhibited in a very striking manner the power of a free people to, to preserve their form of government against its most dangerous foe, civil war. I fuck this guy. Okay. <laughs> Okay, I am just like bowing to Nathan I, at the no, moment right guys, now. He totally I, I got promise this one. you, and David knows this. I, if there's one promise I will make you, it's that I will not read a single solitary sentence that is not recorded for you on podcast form. I did not like sneak ahead to try and like get ahead of David. We we just I I I read the words and I went with it and and this time I was right. It's one time I'm usually wrong. So I'm just going to bask in my momentary glory and then be wrong in about 45 seconds. That's my expectation. Okay. Okay. It not only enfranchised four millions of American slaves of African descent, but made slavery forever impossible in the great Republic and gave a new impulse to the cause of human freedom. Now that, that (laughs) is on my side. Mate, wait, wait, yeah, made slavery forever impossible in the great Republic. Unless you've been convicted of a misdemeanor offense, in which case, get on back to that slavery. Come on now. Mm. 
It was not the abolitionists alone who freed the slaves. The abolitionists never had a real majority of the people of the United States back of them. Freedom for the slave was the logical result of a crazy attempt to wage war in the midst of four million black slaves and trying the while, trying the while sublimely to ignore the interests of those slaves and the outcome of the fighting. Thank no pause, pause, because yes, that is how you frame the Civil War. That yes. is how you do it. It's this was not the abolitionists one. It was the group that had complete control decided to get even greedier than they should have and think that they should wage a war to make their bullshit completely undefensible position defensible as its own nation state. Like no no no. Not only should you acknowledge slavery as real, but you should acknowledge it as like the bedrock of a nation. Uh, fuck off if you thought that was gonna work you're absolutely out of your mind and you deserve everything that's coming to you two time daytona 500 champion jeff davis Mm -hmm. yes these slaves had enormous power in their hands simply by stopping work they could threaten the confederacy with starvation by walking into the federal camps they showed to doubting northerners the easy possibility of using them as workers and as servants as farmers and as spies and finally as fighting soldiers and not only using them thus but by the same gesture depriving their enemies of their use in just these fields it was a fugitive slave who made the slaveholders face the alternative of surrendering to the north or to the negroes it was this plan it was this plain alternative that brought lee's sudden surrender Either the South must make terms with the, its slaves, free them, use them to fight the North, and thereafter no longer treat them as bondmen, or they could surrender to the North with the assumption that the North, after the war, must help them to defend slavery as it had before. It was then that abolition came in as a determining factor and itself was transformed to a new democratic movement. And I think that that's very keen uh, by Du Bois there because obviously, I mean, he knows how this turns out. He's covering this for yeah. a very good reason. And and so he's commenting specifically on the surrender to the north was a compromise in order to defend slavery. You know, it was not like, okay, we were defeated. It was, oh, shit, we're going to actually be defeated by the slaves. We better grab everything we can to still hold on to power. This is this is their compromise. This is their. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, we'll definitely like finally arrest those officers and let Colin Kaepernick play in the NFL. Just please don't get rid of prisons. <laughs> <laughs> and we've pulled it forward, ladies and gentlemen. We have pulled it forward. So in blood and servile war, freedom came to America. What did it mean to men? The paradox of a democracy founded on slavery had at last been done away with, but it became more and more customary as time went on to linger on and emphasize the freedom which emancipation brought to the masters and later to the poor whites. On the other hand, strangely enough, not as much has been said of what freedom meant to the freed, of the sudden wave of glory that rose and burst from the four million people, and of echoing shout that brought joy to 400,000 fellows of African blood in the north. Can we imagine the spectacular revolution? Not of course, unless we think that these people as human beings like ourselves, not unless assuming this common humanity, humanity, we conceive ourselves in a position where we are chattels in a real estate and then suddenly in a night become thenceforward and forever free. Unless we can do this, there is, of course, no point in thinking of this central figure in emancipation. But assuming the common humanity of these people, conceive of what happened before the war, the slave was curiously isolated. This was the policy and the effective policy of the slave system, which made the plantation the center of a black group with, with a network of white folk around it and about, who kept the slaves from contact with each other. Of course, clandestine contact there always was. The passing of Negroes to and fro on errands, particularly the semi-freedom and mingling in cities. And yet the mass of slaves were curiously provincial and kept out of the currents of information. There, there came the slow no, bu- looming. Bu- 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 okay, Backseat, okay, okay. buddy. There came the slow looming of emancipation. Crowds and armies of the unknown, inscrutable, unfathomable Yankees, cruelty behind and before rumors of a new slave trade but slowly continuously the wild truth the bitter truth the magic truth came surging through there was to be a new freedom 
and a black nation went tramping after the armies, no matter what it suffered, no matter how it was treated, no matter how it died. First, without masters, without food, without shelter, then with new masters, food that was free, and improvised shelters, cabins, houses, and at last, land. They prayed, they worked, they danced, and sang. They studied to learn, they wanted to wander. Some, for the first time in their lives, saw a town. Some left the plantation and walked onto the world. Some handed actual money, and some with arms in their hands actually fought for freedom. An unlettered leader of fugitive slaves pictured it. And then we saw the lightning. That was the guns. And then we heard the thunder. That was the big guns. And then we heard the rain falling. And that was the drops of blood falling. And when we came to get in the craps, it was dead man that we reaped. The mass of slaves, even the more intelligent ones, and certainly the great group of field hands, were in religious and hysterical fervor. This was the coming of the Lord. This was the fulfillment of prophecy and legend. It was the golden dawn after change of a thousand years. It was everything miraculous and perfect and promising. For the first time in their life, they could travel. They could see. They could change the dead level of their labor. They could talk to friends and sit at sundown and in moonlight, listening and imparting wonder tales. They could hunt in the swamps and fish in the rivers. And above all, they could stand up and assert themselves. They need not fear the patrol. They need not even cringe before a white face and touch their hats. To the small group of literate and intelligent black folk, north and south, this was a sudden beginning of an entirely new era. They were at last to be recognized as men, and if they were to be given the proper social and political power, their future as American citizens was assured. They had, therefore, to talk and agitate for their civil and political rights. With these in thought and object stood some of the intelligent slaves of the South. Now, before we, we cut these intelligent slaves, we really, I just want to dwell on a second to just... The, the detailed leap to humanity and how how well Du Bois puts us in their shoes and makes us feel that empathy because there's so much about history where you just paper over that. There's no humanity yes. to history, right? No. You know, I mean, the part of the, the great man theory is there's there's titans and there are, there are tyrants and there's geniuses and they're they're all above you. And then part of of materialist history goes, okay, no, that's that's a bunch of bullshit. You know, here's the objective conditions, and then. You know, maybe some people are pressed and, and rise up and some people aren't. But for the most part, it's a grind and it's it's an assessment. There's never this like emotional touch to understand oppression in, in history. And here we talked about um, we've talked many times about not comparing, you know, labor relations and, and your oppression as workers, which, which is a very real oppression and, and comparable in materialism to slavery, but nowhere near comparable in the horrors and the, the lack of humanity. Don't compare it to chattel slavery. Don't compare even old ancient types of slavery, which were very, very different um, to slavery, right? Uh, to chattel slavery. And here you get to see it, right? These people were, were on huge, huge plantations and they were owned generationally and they couldn't talk to each other they couldn't go into town they they just were, were isolated person to person and they had their own little you know secret uh clandestine you know communications like they'd, they'd have to go to another field to pick something up and they'd sneak a word in or something like that uh but everything was running away you know all these everybody likes to, to read about this dystopian science fiction right their lives were dystopian science fiction with no technologies and with whips and bleeding and, and lack of escape for, for generations of your family who could be sold away in a dime, right? I mean, this is dystopian science fiction is almost like trying to use technology to set yourself in the mindset of the slave as if this wasn't the actual reality that all this wealth was based on. And if there aren't still effects felt uh, generationally for colonized people, especially black and indigenous people uh, in this country, 
Um, and, and that's why, you know, you see things like police brutality, you see things like what we're dealing with now, um, with, with, you know, black lives matter uprisings and, and with, you know, um, the, the loss of lives of, you know, of course the, the lynched activists and, uh, Toyin, um, Toyin, Toyin Salau, I, I hope I pronounced that correct. Um, so, you know, I mean, you see these things and, and you saw it at the time, you know, it doesn't have to relate to something today. It, it, it clearly does. But also just if you take it at the time, all of a sudden they met humanity. They could go into town. They could enjoy the evening air. They could have some small plot of land if, if allowed, if it wasn't robbed away in reconstruction, as, as we'll see down the line. But at this point, this was a moment of joy. I mean, this was emancipation. And, and, and this is what liberation you know, you're put into the shoes of liberation and how incredibly humanizing it is and how incredibly dehumanized they were first and, and how they earned this themselves. And all of a sudden, you know, they could exchange money, like all these things they take, we take for granted, um, even adjusted for the time, just the, the immense amount of freedoms they got. Couldn't even imagine. Um, yeah, c- cannot cannot There's even imagine. No but now, now you, you come as close as you can to imagine it because it's spelled out so well by Du Bois and you could feel you can feel the immense joy. And uh, so, you know, I mean, again, you know, this this uh, is titled the, the Coming of the Lord, this chapter, and it's a reference to the Song of the Republic. And there's a lot of religion and, you know, like the great, you know, uh, uh, we trampled in the ramparts with the grapes of wrath. Sword, no, 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 no. And it, it gets yeah. it, it, it gets drummed off in this this dumb military song these days. But, you know, at the time, I mean, you can see where that that real revelation, that real joy for the slaves that forced themselves into these forces, why they, they basically ran to the front lines and said, please let us die. Because if you survive, this is what you win. And if you die, but you win, this is what you win for generations of your family. I mean, just the, the, the complete change. It's like the world lights up for them. And, and so I just want to make sure we properly simmer on that. Um, now I'm going to continue reading because we're very close to the end of this chapter. Uh, Not as close as you'd like to be. No, <laughs> the way we're going, we might finish it this episode. Maybe. Uh, on the other hand, the house servants and mechanics among freed slaves faced difficulties. The bonds which held them to their former masters were not merely sentiment. The masters had stood between them and a world in which they had no legal protection except the master. The masters were their source of information. The question then was how far they could forsake the power of the masters, even when it was partially overthrown. For whom would the slave mechanic work? And how could he collect his wages? What would his status be in court? What protection would he have against the competing mechanic? And again, now and that's why I wanted to simmer on the moment mm-hmm. of joy because I started seeing that paragraph coming. Now we're starting to see the turn of like, okay, you're unbelievable joy, unbelievable high. You you basically been you know something down from heaven has has given you like you talked about the golden dawn has opened up, and oh yeah, by the way, um, all of these racist slaveholders still have a bunch of power and are about to smack you in the mouth for daring free yourselves. Um, Back of this, through it all, combining their own intuitive sense with what friends and leaders taught them, these black folks wanted two things. First, land, which they could own and work for in their own crops. This was the natural outcome of slavery. Some of them had been given by their masters little plots to work on and raise their own food. Sometimes they raised hogs and chickens in addition. This faint beginning of industrial freedom now pictured to them economic freedom. They wanted little farms which would make them independent. Then, in addition to that, they wanted to know, they wanted to be able to interpret the cabalistic letters and figures which they were key to more. They wanted to be literate. Um, they were consumed with curiosity at the meaning of the world. First and foremost, just what was this that had recently happened about them? This upturning of the universe and revolution of the whole social fabric. And what is its relation to their own dimly remembered past of the West Indies and Africa, Virginia and Kentucky? They were consumed with desire for schools. The uprising of black men and the pouring of himself into organized effort for education in those years between 1861 and 1871 was one of the most marvelous occurrences of the modern world, almost without parallel in the history of civilization. The movement that was started was irresistible. It planted the free common school in part of the nation and a part of the world where it had never been known and never been recognized before. Free then, with a desire for land and a frenzy for schools, the Negro lurched into a new day. Hard pause. Not mm-hmm. because what we felt it needed to be like put there, but Doctor Du Bois actually put a literal hard pause in our yeah. in our text. Yeah, and and this is 
And again, I, I mean, just like I wouldn't to simmer on the joy, I think he wants you to simmer on the contradiction, the conflict. And again, the emphasis of, for learning, you know, they didn't get freed and want vengeance. They didn't get freed and want wealth. They, they got freed and wanted sustainable independence and education. Suppose on some gray day, as you plod down Wall Street, you should see the God sitting on the treasury steps and in his glory with the thunders curved about him. Suppose on Michigan Avenue between the lakes and the hills of stone and in the midst of hastening automobiles and jostling crowds, suddenly you see living and walking toward you the Christ with sorrow and sunshine in his face. Foolish talk, all of this you say, of course, and that is because no American now believes in his religion. <laughs> it's facts. <laughs> it's facts are mere symbolism. It's revelation, vague generalities. It's ethics, a matter of carefully balanced gain. But to most of the four million black folk emancipated by the Civil War, God was real. They knew him. They had met him personally in many a wild orgy of religious friendly or in the black stillness of the night. His plan for them was clear. They were to suffer and to be de degraded, and then afterwards, by divine edict, raised to manhood and power. And so on January 1st, 1863, he made them free. It was all foolish, bizarre, and toddy. Gangs of dirty Negroes howling and dancing, poverty-stricken, ignorant laborers, mistaking war, destruction, and revolution for the mystery of the free human soul. And yet, to these black folks, it was the apocalypse. The magnificent trumpet tones of Hebrew scripture, transmitted and oddly changed, became strange new gospel. All that was beauty, all that was love, all that was truth, stood on top of these mad mornings and sang with the stars. A great human sob shrieked in the wind and tossed its tears upon its sea. Free, free, free. We're going to keep reading because that is a lot of allegory. And I think it's very good allegory. I, think it's I mean, immediately, okay, some of so the best I, allegory. I. I Again, I'm, I'm hearkening back to, to, to my religious beliefs and, and fear this very deeply because I, again, you know, part of my problem is, is I very much, and part of what drew me to socialism is I believe in my religion, but I, I can't see a practice in the churches I go to. It just, I cannot, I cannot when, you know, a priest goes on the pulpit and, and talks about like, you know, oh my God, you know, gay marriage is the greatest threat to, to whatever the shit, you know, um, but that passage is just so beautiful and real, and it reminds me. I mean, not only of the beatitudes, right? You know, I mean, the, the blessed are the poor, blessed are, are the the hungry, you know, blessed are the the sorrowful, and, and that of course comes to mind. But it makes me think of a story in the Bible, not to get all, all preachy here, but just to relate it to what Du Bois said, uh, because it's it's probably the piece of of my religion that sticks with me the most, and that drove me to socialism, and it's still something I struggle with today. Um, there's a story where a rich man comes up to Jesus and says, you know, I want to follow you. I want to be a follower. I, I believe in your word. You are God. I want to follow you just like the apostles. And Jesus says, okay, give up everything and come along. Give up your farm, give up everything and come along. And the man cried and ran away because he knew he couldn't. And Jesus immediately turned to the, the apostles and he said, it's easier to fit a camel through the eye of a needle than to bring a rich man into heaven. That is, and that's and the origin. It's that, that wealth makes you greedy. And it's not that that man had wealth. It's that he could not give up wealth when God called him to. And, and poverty allows you to see God, to see suffering, to see, see, you know, love for a fellow man and, and communal belief on its face. It makes it natural. Whereas wealth makes it unnatural. Cause you're always, you know, what if I lose it? What if I have to, to live a little harder? And, and sure that living a little harder is like everybody else. And those people are suffering more and they really need what you have. But what if you fall down to their level? What if I lose what if I lose my house and I have to start renting? What if I lose my cushy job because I got fired standing up for something, you know? What what if I lose, you know, my my fancy things um because I, I screwed up my finances, you know, donating a little too much to to bail funds or to houseless people or something like that. You know, it's 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 a big reason why you know, poor and poverty stricken people tend to be able to give much bigger chunks because they're driven to do it. They know they have to do it to survive. Uh, and, and that, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people hear that and they don't quite get, understand that story. And I think Du Bois really brings that out in a real world example, talking directly on the slave. No. And so I, I, that passage is amazing to me. There was joy in the South. It rose like perfume, like a prayer. Men stood quivering. Slim, dark girls, wild and beautiful with wrinkled hair, wept silently. 
Young women, black, tawny, white, and golden, lifted shivering hands, and old and broken mothers, black and gray, raised great voices and shouted to God across the fields and up the rocks and the mountain. The great song arose, the loveliest thing born on this side of the seas. It was a new song. It did not come from Africa, though the dark throb beat of the ancient days was in it and throughout it. It did not come from white America, never from so pale and hard and thin a thing, however deep these vulgar and surrounding tones had driven. Not the Indies nor the hot South, the cold East or the heavy West made that music. It was a new song and it's deep and plaintive beauty. It's great cadences and wild appeal wailed throbbed and thundered on the world's ears with a message seldom voiced by man it swelled and blossomed like incense improvised and born anew out of an age-long past and weaving into its texture the old and new melodies in word and in thought they sneered at it those white southerners who heard it and never understood they raped and defiled it those white northerners who listened without ears yet it lived and grew and always grew and swelled and lived and it sits today at the right hand of god as America's one real gift to beauty, as slavery's one redemption distilled from its dung. The world at first neither saw nor understood. Of all that most Americans wanted, this freeing of slaves was the last. Everything black was hideous. Everything Negro did was wrong. If they fought for freedom, they were beasts. If they did not fight, they were born from slaves. If they cowered on the plantations, they loved slavery. If they ran away, they were lazy loafers. And if they sang, they were silly. If they scowled, they were impudent. The bites and blows of a nation fell on them. All hatred that the whites after the Civil War had for each other gradually concentrated itself on them. They caused the war. They, its victims. They were guilty of all thefts of those who stole. They were the cause of wasted property and small crops. They had impoverished the South and plunged the North into endless debt. And they were funny, funny, ridiculous baboons aping men. Southerners who had suckled food from black breasts vied with each other in fornication with black women, and even in beastly incest. They took the name of their fathers in vain to seduce their own sisters. Nothing, nothing that black folk did or said or thought or sang was sacred. For 70 years, Americans had dared say a fair word about a Negro. There was no kind of Negro who was freed from slavery. The freedmen were not an undifferentiated group. There were those among them who were cowed and altogether bitter. There were the cowed who were humble, and there were openly bitter and defiant, but whipped into submission or ready to run away. There were the debauched and the furative, petty thieves, licentious scoundrels. There were the few who could read and write, and even those educated beyond that. There were children and grandchildren of white masters that were the house servants trained in manners and in servile respect of the upper classes. There were the ambitious who sought by means of slavery to gain favor or even freedom. There were the artisans who had even a modicum of freedom in their work, who were often hired out and worked practically as free laborers. The impact of legal freedom upon the various classes differed in all sorts of ways. And yet emancipation came not simply to black folk in 1863. To white Americans came slowly a new vision, a new uplift, a new freeing of hateful mental shadows. At least democracy was to be justified of its own children. The nation was to be purged of continual sin not indeed of its own doing, due partly to its inheritance, and yet a sin, a negation, that gave the world the right to sneer at the pretensions of this republic. At least there could be really a free commonwealth of freemen. Thus, amid enthusiasm and philanthropy and religious fervor that surged over the whole country, the black man became in word 
henceforward and forever free. Fondly do we hope and fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God's will that it is continue until all wealth piled up upon the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood by the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, still, still, so still must it be said, the judgments of the Lord and true righteousness all together. Thus spake Father Abraham, the imperial gorilla of Washington, lord of armies vaster than any of Caesar's ever saw, over a barnyard of reeking with offal and a land dripping with tears and blood. Suddenly there was reason in all this mad orgy. Suddenly the world knew why this blundering horror of civil war had to be. God had come to America, and the land, fire drunk, howled the hymn of joy. David? I can't read enough German to read that passage. Yeah, no, there's a bunch of German. There's a bunch of German after that. And yeah. as the only German on this podcast, I, uh, I'm i giving us a full pass on ever talking in German. <laughs> um, Holy and shit. That- that was the end of that chapter. Yeah, um, a little bit. So, I mean, obviously, we can see the turn because this is this is a historical book. It's it, you know, again, we're we're finding history in it, but it's walking us through that, or we're finding theory in it, but it's walking through that history, and we're seeing the turn at the end of the Civil War. So, clearly, clearly, Du Bois does not want to underplay how incredible and important and just an accomplishment abolition of slavery was. And how emancipated people felt. And he really, really wants to get you in that mindset. Because, of course, today we can look back and go, okay, you know, it never was done. Reconstruction fell apart. People never were fully freed. The revolution never fully completed. But even just the jump forward, as much as it's way overrated by the historians, as much as a typical everyday liberalism wants to tell you, you know, racism is over or so much better or give you some progress at time bullshit that dresses that this up as some kind of great, greater victory than it is. We should not take that and minimize how incredibly emancipatory just moving from formalized, legalized slavery to the abolishment of slavery in the 13th amendment and the win of that by the black masses is and again you know it's not it's not the abolitions of the north that won that it's not just the civil war itself that provided an opportunity but it's not that it's not the emancipation proclamation that won that although again you know that that led to say you know british backing worker backing we talked about things like that it's not even the 13th amendment that won that that was just a manifestation of of what black people had won and again you know like anything else it, it would be turned on them by a very racist settler colony uh, it was that they had won that freedom. They had turned that epoch. They had done the first true revolution on this land. And finally, this land that, that dresses itself up in religion and godliness. And, and you know, we, we brought modern democracy and we brought freedom. And the American ideal has inspired the world and none of that bullshit was true. And finally, finally, for all that haughty talk, there was an actual liberation. There was an actual just jump to freedom. And it was won by the masses who were freed. And and we should never write that off. We should never feel that. But we should also see, and he talked about this, he laid the seeds, that that the white masses, um, and this was very good of, you know, it, it had awakened the racism in the, the working class, um, largely inspired, of course, by the ruling class, and it had driven the ruling class to point it towards them. It immediately became the white masses like, oh, we had this war, we died, we ran into debt for you. This was all for you. I mean, these were the victims of slavery, and the Civil War had itself out. We talked about this, not even over that. They didn't even want the abolition. It had itself out because there were economic fights, and and there was a, uh, remember, I mean, if, if, before the Great Depression, there weren't depressions. There were, there were, uh, uh, crises. I can't think of it. Crises, thank you. Uh, there were crises. You know, there was a crisis, right? Really depression. And, and that sparked this whole thing off. 
it was never about the abolition of slavery. It was slaves that forced their freedom through this. And yet for seizing an opportunity and for doing the first just thing that ever happened on this land, there was bitterness. And we will unfortunately see that. And, and he's setting up, you know, the fall of reconstruction, the greed, the, the, the fact that the state, and we understand this from Lenin. And so now we're going to start tying this back into Lenin as we, as we should, um, the <laughs> no, state no, no, is not as we should, as we must, as we must, as a result the of state, the, the way we were formulated. The state is is a dictatorship. It's always either a dictatorship of the proletariat and or dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. And we should also understand colonization as a class in this country. And it was a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie and a dictatorship of the colonizer. That's what America always is as a settler colony. That's why we're fighting, you know, capitalism and colonialism and imperialism all at the same time, because that's what it is. It is a dictatorship of those three things. And that state it, it took this black victory, this emancipation of slavery from them. And it said, okay, we'll put it into words with our own compromise and, and resetting our own power. It, it did um, damage control in order to reassert that ruling class. And, and, and part of that damage control is to get the white masses on its side and to, to blame the slaves for, for this war and this debt, you know, I mean, kind of like France did to Haiti for daring to free itself. Uh, and that's what it channeled through the 13th and 14th Amendment. So as historic as those are, those are actually kind of taking away the freedom that the slaves won themselves. And we're setting up what will happen and how that's going to material meet out and, and bring us to where we are today going forward. And, uh, and we'll be able to do that starting next time. Yeah, so starting next time, again, I, I've made one promise to you, and it's that, it's that I won't read forward in this book, but <laughs> I do know how history played out, and I have a feeling it's not mm-hmm. in a way that's going to make me super thrilled going forward. So you, 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 you don't look forward to 600 pages of Nathan being sad. Mm-hmm. That being said, um, there, there are a, a couple of, different ways you can reach out to us if you would like to uh, contact us on this podcast. One, if you email us at marksmadnesspod at gmail.com, um, either me or David will send you a thoughtful response because that's just you know how we do. And usually if you're sending us an email, uh, it's a thoughtful email, so it deserves a thoughtful response. We move forward, and then we get to Twitter, and here's the thing about Twitter. Uh, you can hit us up at Mark's Madness Pod on Twitter. Um, I'm not convinced any of you sending me DMs on Twitter anymore are real people. You're you're all <laughs> robots as far as I'm concerned because I've I've gotten like the last six have been nothing but robot nonsense. So if you're real and you want to talk to us on Twitter, by all means. Which and, and then following that is the best way to get at us, and by us I mean Nathan, um, and that's to join Discord. The Discord is at Dumb and Awful Discord. Um, if you want to find it, it's it, it's you go to our Twitter and we've got a whole thing. It's in our bio, um, or just just look up Dumb and Awful Discord. And if you don't want to do that, email us marksmadnesspod at gmail dot com. I'll give you the link. And then come on to the Discord, and and we'll we'll talk. We'll we'll have a little back and forth. We'll have some some fun times. Um, but that's probably the easiest way to make sure I see your message because I see those before I see anything else, and I don't I, I don't know why. It's just the thing I look at first. So that being said, David, we did the disclaimer thing last episode. Do you have any plugs mm-hmm. at the end of this episode that you'd like to do? Um. Not at the moment. Obviously, you know, donate to local bail funds. Make sure that the uprisings going on out there are not just turned into uh, protests and bail funds. Make sure you are finding local organizations. You are materially giving and getting involved with them. Um, we obviously know some different, you know, regional ones. Um, so, for example, you know, in uh, St. Louis, there's the uh, Center for People's Self-Determination. Um, in, uh, what was it, um... In L.A., it's the uh, – I'm sorry. In Oakland, it's the Oakland. People's Breakfast. In, in L.A., it's the People's Revolutionary Party, um, Long Beach. Uh, in Chicago, it's the uh, Chicago Alliance. North Carolina, or, East Coast. GSO Woe in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, and then, of course, in Chicago, is the Chicago Alliance 
against racist and political repression, um, which is a, a prison abolitionist uh, I like uh, all those things. organization in Chicago. Yes. Um, and of course, you know, I mean, if you have any any other regions you want to know about, obviously we don't have a map and we don't have like a list of every organization ever. Uh, but <laughs> we will certainly do our research. To, we we have some ideas of some organizations out there, and we can certainly try our best to to, to point you to one um, as we've had people do. So so um, definitely, you know, give to those organizations. Um, get involved if you can. Um, and anything you do, you know, make sure that you realize that. Theory is just there to sharpen your praxis, and praxis is misguided without theory. They go hand in hand, and wherever you go, also realize that there are seasoned organizers that have been doing this for a long time. That doesn't mean they're totally right, so don't don't be afraid in your own convictions, but don't just bust in thinking you own the place. Uh, be humble. Realize that they have learned from their own praxis, and they are the leadership there for a reason, and make sure that for everything you do know that you could correct them on, um, they probably know a hundred things that you need to learn first, and then you need to come humbly and respectfully through their channels to correct them on these things. And obviously, you know, hopefully they take your criticism. If they don't, uh, that's a way to assess if you want to be part of an organization or not. That being said, this has been Mark's Madness. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.